Hello, everyone. You're listening to Digital Builder, a podcast brought to you by Autodesk, made for construction professionals who want to hear from those on the forefront of construction technology. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Each episode will feature a conversation with a construction industry leader. Together, we'll dig in on themes related to connected construction and discuss where the future of the construction industry is headed. Now let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 16 of Digital Builder. I'm your host, Eric Thomas. This week, we are diving straight into the wild world of digital twins. It's a topic we're hearing about all the time, and I'm excited to learn what creating a digital twin really brings to the table. To uncover all of this, I'm joined by Bob Bray, Senior Director and General Manager of Autodesk Tandem, and Tim Kelly, Senior Product Manager, also with Autodesk. First off, I just want to say thanks for you know taking the time to join me on the show this week. It's going to be a lot of fun to dig in on all things digital twins. Great to be here, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having us. And, you know, I'm excited about this conversation because of the unique perspective each of you bring to the table. And Bob, I know you've spent most of your career developing software for the AEC industry, you know, working at Autodesk, which I'm thankful for. And Tim, before you moved to product development, I know you were a senior project manager at a large general contractor for a number of years. And so, you know, for our listeners with those details in mind, I'd like to start this episode a little differently, if you guys will humor me. And Bob, I'm going to throw this question to you first. Can you tell me how a tech company can best empower the industry that they serve through software development? I think good tech companies, Eric, are are partners to the industry they serve, to the customers they serve, really understand with passion the, the needs of those customers and how the industry is evolving and then building technology to enable those customers to really push their business forward in ways they couldn't without that technology. So technology is an enablement and and an empowerment tool. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And again, with my industry background, when I was on the other side of this, having someone that was acting as a partner and helping us move our project forward and ultimately our organization forward applying technology, it's invaluable. I've seen that success in uh, in other organizations as well. And I always appreciate, you know, just hearing how we can work with our customers and the industry can, you know, just, you know, help each other out. So anyway, I appreciate that take on how, you know, technologies can really impact their markets, but let's move on to the main show theme today, digital twins. And Bob, I want to start off with the basics here. And for those out there listening who aren't already familiar with digital twins, Can you define the concept and how one is created? Sure, Eric. A digital twin is effectively a digital replica of a built asset. But what's really important is a bi-directional connection between the physical and the digital so that that digital understands what's happening, everything that's happening from a utilization performance perspective of that built asset so that you have the the knowledge to basically you know, inform, predict, and look at future decisions based on how that asset is performing in the real world. In terms of how they're built, that's a tricky story because I think uh, today they're mostly built out of a very bespoke process of data capture, data collection, honestly, a lot of duct tape and bubble gum to glue systems together to create that digital twin. It's not a very repeatable process, very expensive, typically very brittle. And I think you're kind of hitting the nail on the head about 
some of the tools offered to our industry in general. Like we've had this incredible surge of investment and attention in the AEC world in the last five to 10 years, but it's also created a lot of noise. And as our stakeholders and customers come to the table trying to figure out how to leverage technology, there's a lot of intentional choices that need to be made to get that process started. So everything is connected at the end of the conversation. And from what you just shared, I think it's clear that a digital twin isn't just a new variation of a BIM model. And I'd love to get Tim's opinion on what the benefits are for the owners, the end users, and all of the other project stakeholders, really what they get from adopting a digital twin. As Bob talked about there, there's this notion of a, a predictive analytics and information coming out of the digital twin about what's happening in the facility. And to add to the, the comment about developing a digital twin, we see the hardware side of this, uh, the, the cost is coming down significantly and, and deploying you know, sensors and IoT into your facility. It's come down so, so much that you know it is of high interest right now. And a lot of people are looking at different ways they can collect all of that feedback and display it in a meaningful way. And that in a meaningful way is key there because it's difficult to organize all of that information so that you can actually drive decisions made about the facility and how you're operating the facility. So in terms of how this ultimately ties to BIM, there is this notion that has evolved over the last decade or so in the industry of BIM for FM. And this connection to a digital twin or this evolution towards a digital twin is something different where we're actually focused on that information coming out of the facility and that replication or uh, reflection of what, what's happening within the facility. There are some pieces that tie together there, but ultimately that's the important part of what a digital twin is. And the value proposition for an owner is, is really pretty clear, right? Understanding the performance of that built asset. You know, if you have certain sustainability goals, am I achieving them? Am I not achieving them? If I have certain, you know, equipment that I really want to measure mean time between failure for, being able to understand what my target was versus what my operational outcome is, is really valuable data. And this can get really simple down to, you know, tile that maybe for a retail owner is more slippery when it's wet and is causing accidents. And how much of that tile do they actually have. The only way to do it today is typically for these customers to go out and do site surveys, which is expensive, costly. They can't just query a database and say, how much of the style do I have? And that's one of the very simple things that Digital Twin can do for our, our customers and for an owner. So for those out there building today and in a lot of the newer facilities that have come to market in the last few years, how common is it for the owners to be leveraging all of these you know, more modern sensors and Internet of Things technologies that could be leveraged in a digital twin? I'm, I'm trying to understand what the landscape of like the fully modernized building is compared to you know the buildings of yesterday. I think there's two answers to that question, Eric. There is a lot of equipment that an owner can buy and, and choose to install today that is already sensor enabled. A lot of HVAC equipment, a lot of equipment that gets deployed into a building from electrical systems to HVAC systems are already sensor enabled. So it's really about taking advantage of that in a modern building. This can also be retrofit. So if you have an existing facility, you can get off the shelf products and devices to retrofit many different systems in a building and also add sensors to spaces so you can detect occupancy, 
or air temperature or all kinds of things. So both are quite possible and, and very available today. Yeah, and that notion of retrofit is it's much simpler today with wireless technology where before you'd have to think about wiring devices and, and ultimately now with the prevalence of, of that, you know, different systems, wireless enabled, it's, it's quite easy to do that retrofit. I nerd out on some of this stuff in my personal life, and I have to be careful not to say the right trigger word because <laughs> my my house is scattered with Google Home Minis and all of my, as you, yeah, Tim's holding one up right now. And I talk to my lights, I yell at Google <laughs> all day long to tell me all these different things and information. And you're absolutely right. It's all wireless now, which is incredible, like even down to security cameras and all kinds of other stuff. And of course, I'm talking about the home and not, you know, a big multi-million or billion dollar facility. But I think the ease of use and the plug and play with the way the technology is now is so much further along than it was even a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's a really exciting opportunity for owners to step back and go like, wow, like we can get so much data on our existing facilities that we didn't even know is there. So yeah, that's right. I mean, the home side of it, you go to the big box store and half of the aisle is sensor enabled or, or uh, smart devices, right? And ultimately, you know, that's re replicated manufacturers in the commercial space. You look at really any of the devices you're putting in a facility and you've got that option of having, you know, something built in from the start and, and a number of them. On the flip side of that, Eric, I mean, a lot of buildings are built with a lot of assets in them and owners don't necessarily have good data on what those assets are or where they are. So even doing servicing on a particular piece of equipment can be complicated because you may go to where you think that piece of equipment is and guess what? It's not actually there. Or you need a tool to access it that you don't actually have because you didn't realize you needed a ladder, say, to get into the ceiling. You thought it was accessible from the ground. So those are all challenging things that an owner deals with on the pragmatic side of data and, and digital twins. And even if you just think about it from a cost savings perspective on time, if you've got a university campus that sprawls, you know, a massive amount of space, like just one maintenance person going out to the science facility to check on some light bulbs could take two or three hours of their time, depending on what they needed to get, how they got there when they're moving around and the ability to capture some of that data without having somebody just wandering around aimlessly with a big binder of paperwork seems like a, a good decision to implement, even if you're having to do it in a retroactive way. And most of us know that construction projects and contractors and owners are not always at the same stage in their digital maturity. And Bob, I'd really like to get a little more understanding of how common digital twins really are in our industry now. I would say in the AEC industry, they are not common. Quite the contrary. I think they are an aspiration for most, but in terms of being common, I would say they're rare at best. As I mentioned before, when we think about this BIM for FM evolution over the last you know decade or two, it is aspirational. And a lot of people think about that BIM process that it results in a digital twin. But you know, I can think of countless situations where a, a set of information is delivered and that information isn't usable from the FM side. And so that facility team goes back to what they traditionally rely on, which is go out and look at it with my own eyes and then go get the equipment and you know parts that I need to replace that whatever may be out. And it feels like an opportunity. Like if for anybody out there listening and you know if you're an owner or a contractor who has a really great relationship with the owners you serve, like step back and take a look at some of this technology because you know if you can empower them 
them, you're going to help them, and they're going to make some decisions that help them understand their facility better. And if you work with them on a routine basis, hopefully they can take that lessons learned from their living, breathing digital twin and bring it to the next project, especially if they're a serial biller. There's there's just a ton of opportunity. So Tim, I'm curious, do you think there's a, a driver or a catalyst beyond us having this conversation on digital builder today that would you know really convince the AEC industry to fully adopt and implement digital twins? Like what's that lever that we could pull that would get the, the blinders taken away and the idea bulbs on everybody's heads, you know, turn it on? That is a great question. And it's something I, I feel like Bob and I talk about frequently. You know, we, we do speak a lot to those early adopters in our industry for looking at new technology and thinking about how they can work with their clients to, as you mentioned, you know, drive things forward from the facilities perspective. And I think the catalyst is ultimately changing that engagement and that relationship. We've seen contract structures over across the industry change over time, and that being a more collaborative space. You, you think about the traditional hard bid evolving to a higher prevalence of uh, CM at risk and design build type engagements. And you'll hear this theme from Bob and myself constantly. It's start the conversation. Start the conversation, and you'll understand that there are benefits there. There's a need on the other side. You, you look at the you know handover documentation and what's being handed over or thrown over a wall today, it's completely disjointed and disorganized. And ultimately, if you start that conversation, you can understand that there's a better way and a, a different way we would ultimately see engagement between you know contractors, engineers, architects, and ultimately the, the clients that they're working with. And you know, Eric, we started this conversation with how kind of a, a technology provider can be a partner to their customers, right? In the same way, many of our conversations with Autodesk traditional AEC customers are about them being a better partner to their clients, the owner, in terms of how they can both deliver more value to that client and how they can help that client really achieve better outcomes overall through a digital twin technology. It's, it's more value for the AEC firm at the end of the day, more value for the owner, and it achieves a much better outcome for that owner at the end of the day. And so that, that partnership philosophy we're seeing within our AEC customer base as well. Bob, are you telling me that a box full of binders in CD-ROMs and flash drives is not a good baseline for turnover packages? Is, is that what I'm hearing in, in the back of your, uh, your message here? You're hearing that loud and clear. <laughs> and in fact, you know, it's not uncommon for an owner, you know, to have to basically turn that back into digital data, which is not an easy process. It can take months. I've heard owners, you know, spending six to nine months getting to a state of operational readiness in a facility. And that's, if you think about the, the wasted time and the energy required for that, there has to be a better way. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. And even outside of the time it takes to take that piecemeal turnover package and move it into some sort of digital twin or system that that can be leveraged more accurately, we're not even touching the data loss that's going to happen in that process. Because if you've pulled everything in from all of these different tools and systems that were captured, but not captured intentionally with the end user in mind, especially considering the cost of a building is 
predominantly in the ownership phase and the maintenance phase, not the building phase. Like it's such a missed opportunity to to really just do this well. It's even worse than that because the data typically gets fed back into systems in the owner, you know, like a, a CMMS system for maintenance management, you know, a building management system for managing the basic HVAC systems, you know, maybe a, a tenant leasing system. And these are all disjointed systems that provides that owner no single pane of glass, no way to look at that data holistically for that single facility, let alone across their portfolio. So that represents just additional challenges and, and frankly, lost opportunity. Yeah, it seems like a great chance for us to you know step back and, and do better as an industry. And I'm excited that people are starting to embrace this and we get to have conversations like this one. And Tim made a couple comments about contracts and delivery methods that I'd like to come back to, especially since, Bob, you've shared some insights and thoughts about this with me previously. But I'd like to get a, a better understanding of your opinion on how our current procurement and delivery methods and models really impact the owners and how embracing and implementing digital twins can kind of change that conversation. Sure. I think the challenge lies in exactly that. Our, our current contract structures are really there to discourage data sharing between participants in the project lifecycle. Data gets flattened into packages of typically PDFs tossed from one contractor to the next. They're really trying to cover their risk, primarily not deliver the best value to that customer that they can. And, and the industry has operated this way for a long time. This is not something that's new or a new challenge. It's just the way the industry has operated for many, many years. And the opportunity here is, yes, you have to manage risk. That, that's a given in the industry. That's a given in the world. But that does not inhibit sharing of information and data. And, and I use this phrase a lot. I, I like to say what we need to be doing is instead of tossing paper over the wall to the next person down the line, right? We need to track a digital thread of information to the day decisions are made about procurement and installation, the day that piece of equipment is commissioned. And if we do that, then we're tying this information together and giving that owner that digital thread that allows him to then connect additional information to this. So we have to break those barriers between the firms doing the work. Continue to protect the risk because that's important to everyone to make sure everybody is protected and doing what they're contracted to do. But delivering this data value should be above and beyond that and should cut through that risk and, and these issues legally. Yeah, it should certainly be about partnering and that notion of a collaborative environment. And I know sometimes that sounds like a utopia in our industry, but as we shift forward and think about platforms that help enable that, ultimately that platform can put in place a process of each individual party has specific requirements that they're delivering. And so you can manage that risk and ultimately manage, as Bob talked about, handing that data from one to the next without stepping out of, you know, your internal risk management that you need to follow as an organization. The former proposal manager in me, my head is just screaming right now because <laughs> I'm like, like mandate these things in the RFP yeah. stage, you know, like that's, that's, that's right. a, a driver that is on the table for a lot of our listeners if they're in the owner market. And there's an episode a few back, if you have not heard it, where we featured Multigreen, who has a really progressive approach to how they consume technology and just, you know, work with all the stakeholders there. So 
as we continue empowering owners to learn about these technologies and what that end state is, I think that that opportunity to come back in and really drive those relationships, and I hate to say doing it contractually, but you're putting it in the RFP from some of these steps, I think can help. But then also just choosing your partners who you're building with can go a long way as well. I was trapped in the world of firm fixed price bids for a long time when I was still doing federal work. And it was very nice to step outside of that because you had no room to consider the betterments that you could bring to the table as a general contractor. Exactly. And that conversation is very different when you're empowered to make the decisions not only on price, but on leveraging tools like digital twins and construction technology platforms and all the other fun stuff that I'm privileged enough to geek out on on this podcast every other week. And so we know what digital twins are now. I think Tim and Bob have done a great job of explaining what the heck they are and what the value and the betterments are to the industry as a whole. So I think this is a great moment to pivot to the second part of today's show where we can discuss the future for digital twins, construction technology, and learn more about how an owner can get started using the concepts on their own projects. And I'm going to pivot back to you, Bob, here. I'd like it if you could share some guidance for a hypothetical owner that wants to create a digital twin on an upcoming project that they're about to put out for bid? Sure. I think the most important thing is getting back to basics, right? As an owner, typically the capital project team puts that out to bid. They put out to bid to commission this new facility, but they don't think about what they need downstream to operate that facility effectively. So first and foremost, getting together with your facility management team and understanding you know, from an FM perspective, what are all the assets I need to manage in that facility going forward? What are the spaces in that facility that I, I need to utilize and manage effectively? And how do the systems that connect those assets to those spaces actually work? And, and what data do I need for each of these pieces? And putting that data up front and having that conversation with the project team and getting that codified in, in, in a contract up front that you're gonna deliver these things is a key, but not just deliver them in an analog set of papers, deliver them digitally. And I think that is where the industry will start to change when owners recognize we have these needs. These needs can make us that much more efficient if we can get this data in our hands at project turnover, then I, I think that's where the industry changes in, in the opportunity that owners have to really kickstart this process and, and put it into high gear. Yeah, and I, I'd add that you don't have to be perfect from the start. If we think about drawing a correlation to them requirements and contracts or an RFP or the document management requirements, you know, think back in early days that, that, that might say, on my project, you need to use BIM, or we must develop a common document management system, it just really generic. And ultimately, they're looking for, again, their partners, uh, the, those that are submitting to bring some solutions to the table. And over time, now you look at those RFPs now, and ultimately, there's a comprehensive BIM execution plan, or there's a comprehensive requirement around a CDE, and ultimately, what needs to be incorporated there. So I would say, you know, don't think about this as something that's so far-fetched that you can't achieve it today. It is something that you can start with and ultimately develop over time. And as Tim said, start pragmatic, right? You don't need Need to know about every nut and bolt that goes into your curtain wall. What are those assets that you absolutely need to manage and what data do you need to manage them effectively? It doesn't need to be super comprehensive, 
Start simple. I love that guidance. And it's come up on other topics on this show in the past. And so for those listening, like heat it, like the way to to get going is just start like decision paralysis sucks. And we all kind of get stuck there sometimes when we're looking at that future state and how complex it might be. But if you do make that decision to start moving forward, I think you get to iterate as you go. And and I think as Tim said, like, you're not going to be perfect the first try. And that's okay, because you get to learn from it. And you get to, you know, iterate and get better over time. And I think intentionality is the word that really comes to mind for me there. I should probably put a swear jar on my desk for that one too, because I say it on the show a lot. It's like, be intentional about how you gather data, be intentional about how you set these things up. Because if you're not, you might have a ton of data at the end of it and you can do some stuff with it. But if you haven't thought it through, you haven't set yourself up in that ideal state. So I love these actionable tips for those out there who are just getting started. Tim, I was wondering, do you, have any common avoidable challenges that our listeners should look out for when they start creating a digital twin for the first time? Like, are there some common missteps where it's easy to go, oh, don't do that. And then, you know, they can avoid that when they get started themselves. Yeah, I think you actually just said the right thing here and challenges people face is is they want to collect absolutely everything about everything. And if you're intentional about what you want collected and what data you want to leverage, and you can think think about how that gets organized, then you're in a much better spot. Now, if, if you don't know, look at an industry standard and, and, and follow something that's out there in terms of guidance around what, what data you want and, and what assets you want to track data for. And ultimately, you, know, you can whittle that down and narrow that information over time and put it into you know, practical application. But it is about starting with an intention and thinking about the way you ultimately want to collect this information. Another quick item would be, again, have the conversation conversation, talk to your stakeholders on the project and and get buy-in. Ultimately, I think a lot of people approach this with, I need to have the answers or have done the research myself. But when you're working with a large team, big projects and small projects, you're going to have a number of contributors that may have heard about or or understand this process a bit differently than you. And having that dialogue enhances that ultimately what's delivered in part of your outcome. I'd say another lesson is, you know, if you write that you want a digital twin is an outcome, you're probably not going to get a good outcome, right? So again, you know, yes, you may want that digital twin, but understand what the outcomes you're trying to achieve are. That might be really, really simple to start with. It doesn't have to be understanding every aspect of the performance of your facility. Start simple, make sure you understand those data requirements and make sure you're really clear in your contract and in your relationship and in your conversations with your contractors you know, what that outcome is and and how you're going to achieve it. I think those conversations are kind of that connecting tissue to ensure success, especially if you're just getting started. If you're not standardizing, you know, how you're capturing data and having those discussions early on, there's often a lot of opportunity for misalignment. And if you aren't sure where to get started, there are a lot of standards out there in the world to, to drive off of. I know in North America, things like ISO 19650 aren't as exciting or as commonly adhered to, but, you know, we can learn a lot from our friends and EMEA and APAC who are focusing on those things a lot more because it kind of sidesteps that awkward conversation at the beginning where you go, what are all of our standards? What do we agree on? What do we call a thing? What is this thing? Do we really mean this? Now you just get to go, boom, 
here's our standards. We all know what they are. These are all the things. And then you just get started. And honestly, Eric, I mean, Kobe has existed for 10 plus years, right? And, and Kobe is a way of capturing some of this data. The challenge with Kobe has always been it's in an IFC format or an Excel spreadsheet, which at the end of the day, isn't all that useful. It's, it's another difficult to consume artifact and difficult to produce artifact. But those standards have existed for quite a while and, and have evolved over the years. So, I mean, there, there is a lot to learn from some of the existing industry practices and standards and things we can leverage there. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff. I always cringe when I hear Excel come up now simply because the AEC industry <laughs> used that tool so heavily and it's not suited for you know the scale and scope of, of large projects in particular. So it always makes me thankful that you know we've pivoted to this, this prime environment of construction tech and disruption, even though everybody hates that word now, but there's, there's so many cool industry-specific tools that we can use, and those standards are all still relevant. Just one more comment on the ISO requirement. So we, we do talk a lot about division three or part three of that, which is the operational phase of assets. And the very beginning of that spec is have the conversation with your appointed parties, so your contractors, and define the scope together. So it is about having that dialogue and, and setting those requirements up. And, and ultimately there is some guidance on if you don't have a classification system, pick this or pick this. And, and so it, you know, following that process allows you to drill into you know, a guided step-by-step -step through that conversation and, and ultimately define your requirements. I like that point because it does really emphasize that we can have all the construction technology in the world and all these great tools, but relationships and construction are still so important in communication and understanding the expectation of all the, the different stakeholders. So moving on from you know the standards in place and everything else, let's go back to that hypothetical contractor or owner that we were talking about earlier. Once construction is finished for them and the handover process is complete, does the general contractor still have a role in the client's digital twin moving forward? And I ask this question because, Bob, you'd mentioned this specifically in the past past in a, in a prior conversation. And I thought it was an important topic to bubble back up again. Yeah. And I think it depends a lot on the contractor and the contract that's in place and the relationship between that contractor and, and that owner. There are many contractors that do maintain a facility for a number of years post turnover as part of warranty or under contract to that owner to maintain that facility over a number of years. But I think in this particular case, there's clear opportunity, I think, for AEC firms, for contractors to become a better partner and help manage that digital data on behalf of that owner. Many times owners don't have BIM firms. They, they don't have BIM teams, right? They don't have detailed experience in this and contractors do. And that's one value that they can bring to that owner that does two things, tightens up the partnership between the, the contractor and the owner, building bridges, if you will, and, and better communication between the two, but also a much longer opportunity to work together and, and deliver more value to that owner over time. Yeah, I think, you know, Bob nailed it in, in the sense of that, that contractor is likely already engaged with warranty and, you know, post-project, there are going to be situations where somebody doesn't even know the, the length or duration of the warranty on a particular component. So they're going to pick up the phone and call the contractor and say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling to find this particular document. Can you help me look? I've definitely been the other end, on the other end of that call where I have all of the documents on my server still that we handed over and I know where to look. But ultimately, that, that engagement stays. And if we can drive a process that better organizes it, and as Bob mentioned, in some cases, structure that where it's a service that you provide to a client, then ultimately, we're going to have a situation where you're 
you know, forming better relationships with with your you know potential future clients in, in some cases. And I really like coming back to the relationship topic again, too, because if the owner, especially if they're a serial builder, has a contractor where they develop this type of relationship with and continue partnering with them, like the costs of bringing new work to the table oftentimes go down, too, because your procurement process, your proposal process, all of these things change pretty dramatically when you, you do build that relationship where you go, Toby, contractor, they're my guys and we're going to use them and you can trust them to bring good pricing, but also understand all the systems and the expectations that you already have that a new partner wouldn't you know, bring to the table immediately and you'd have to build all over again. So there's a lot going on there. So after hearing all of this insight about you know the how and where to start for the world of digital twins, I feel like the creation of and the maintenance of a digital twin are, are two very different but equally important pieces of the puzzle. And Tim, I'd appreciate if you could share how owners of the world can ensure they're successfully maintaining their digital twins once that project is built. So we've we've had a great conversation about you know what goes into them, how to get started, how the the contract contractor relationship might go in there, but what should the owner be doing to, to really ensure that their asset lives in a way that's usable for the duration of the building's life cycle? Yeah, that's a great question and something Bob and I talk with our customers about all the time. And certainly, you know, that creation is leveraging the relationship with the AEC community and then, you know, operation begins, they walk away, you're, you're maintaining a facility. I'd say step one is use it. If you're not using the information, you're not engaging with it, then you're ultimately gonna have stagnant data at some point in time. So you need to be actively engaging and using the digital twin to maintain and operate the facility. And ultimately that's going to help keep, you know, Bob talked a little bit about digital threat of information. You're gonna keep that history on assets as you're leveraging the uh, digital twin. Maintenance is, a, is certainly a different thing than the creation. And, and as we think about facilities changing over time, components being swapped out, renovations happening. It's something that might be a tricky thing for a facilities team to maintain. So certainly if you're looking at adopting a digital twin, you, you do need a point person or a, a team member involved that is looking after the maintenance of that. And, you know, it could come from different aspects or it could ultimately be part of the capital projects team or, or maybe even part of the facilities maintenance team. But I would say you, you need to appoint someone to look after that that and, and be the liaison for other contributors and, and, and consumers over time. I'll add one thing to that. At the end of the day, a digital twin, if it's healthy, it's a living, breathing entity. It's a, it's, it's a current state of your facility and everything about it. And if any point that data in there is stale or it's not maintained, it's no longer useful. So keeping that twin current is extremely important. And there's some changes and it's going to depend on the owner, right? And how BIM mature that owner is. There may be changes that they can make directly to that model that are lightweight, that don't require the expertise of, of a BIM expert or a data expert. And there's other changes that, that they may need to go back out to a team that, that is an expert in Revit or, or other design tools to kind of make those updates. But understanding, you know, what can be done by the owner directly, what experts 
expertise they need, may even open up new roles, by the way, inside an owner versus what they may want to contract out for is, is a key part of it. Bob, you took the words right out of my mouth. That's where I was headed next as far as I feel like there's new opportunities now for positions, especially for younger, tech savvy, excited individuals who get to go like, wow, like I get to play with this living, breathing model of this facility and then, you know, maintain it and help this cool owner with this awesome project do all these different things. And so for the owners out there listening, like I think this is a cool chance to step back and go, where can we build our team out in a way that brings in new skill sets and new diverse people to the team? And then, you know, if you're a a tech enabled person, start poking those owners and say like, do you need somebody like me? Because I have all this BIM experience or this VDC knowledge that can really come to the table and change the way an owner thinks is they operate existing facilities in the next ones. So it creates a lot of opportunity at the end of the day for people to either leverage skills that they're not currently leveraging or leverage skills that they're bringing into a company that, that maybe that company hasn't had before or for employees to leverage those skills that they have and are, aren't using, right? So there, there is untapped potential often in an employee base. Yeah, and I think as, you know, I I think about my career and when I was managing a BIM team and ultimately deploying services or technology in different processes in our business. And I I do remember the times that we take this information to our superintendents and they'd say, no no superintendent is going to manage or leverage this VDC process. And, And we've seen how that's evolved over time. And the same thing, you go to the old school estimators and they're like, why am I going to use this model data? What, where's the value here? And we've seen that change over time. And I think in this case as well, this is something that is evolving and the technology is there, the technology is maturing, and certainly there's value on the other side of that. So, so put someone in place or bring someone on board that can help you manage that value and, and extract more out of what you're getting from your capital projects team or ultimately that delivery team. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to see how you know the industry has evolved in the last five to 10 years. When I came in, I was again working for that federal contractor. So we were even less likely to be adopting a lot of these more progressive tools because we were federally mandated to do certain things in the most archaic way possible, including, you know, using Microsoft Word to write 400 page proposals and mail them a box full of 45 binders with the final proposal, which is just hysterical. And thankfully, friends of mine who are still in that world have confirmed that the government has stopped asking for so many silly things and are getting better about online submissions and electronic submissions and such. But I'm off topic here. I want to pivot back to just digital twins in general. And Bob, I know your team has been working hard on tech specifically for digital twins. And what is pretty interesting to me is you were part of an incubator program here at Autodesk that I'm not admittedly very familiar with that helped bring the product to life. And could you tell me a little bit more about the program and and what that incubator process was was like and then what you have in your hands today from all of that hard work. It's a lot of fun, first and foremost. So incubation at Autodesk is effectively like running a startup inside of a large enterprise. And that's pretty much the way my team operates. We operate like a startup inside of Autodesk. I'm very focused on, on this notion of digital twin and understanding what Autodesk role in what I'll call the digital twin ecosystem is, right? Because digital twin is never one solution from one provider. It's always going to be solutions from multiple vendors working together to deliver that value. So in terms of Autodesk, what we've been doing is is exactly kind of what we've been talking about in this conversation, right? How do we 
as an industry, capture that owner's data requirements around their assets, their spaces, their systems, create a repeatable process for defining those requirements and then leveraging that from facility to facility, and then workflows that really enhance our existing design and construction portfolio to capture all of that asset data through the project lifecycle, delivering to the owner what we call a descriptive digital twin, or that digital twin that describes all of those asset spaces, systems in that facility in the way the owner needs them described. So that digital artifact that, if you will, indexes all of that traditional handover documentation. So suddenly I can search for a particular piece of equipment. I can go from that piece of equipment in a, in a 3D model to a 2D sheet to you know the specific spec sheet or maintenance manual for that or, or maintenance schedule for that piece of equipment and have all of that information at my fingertips. And that descriptive twin that's basically ready to be connected into the owner's operational systems, recorder management systems, IoT systems, things like that, to really bring that to life. So that is a project or a product called Autodesk Tandem that Tim and I I've been working on, my team has been working on, and, and we're very excited about bringing to market. I'll say one more thing about it, and, and that's that, you know, in, in true incubation and startup style, we haven't just gone off and done this in isolation, right? We, we've been working very closely with a number of customers to collect their input, their feedback, validate features, even help us set priorities on this project. And their input has been incredibly valuable along the way. Again, you know, Tim and I are acting as partners to our customers, really trying to deliver a, a solution that will help the industry move forward. Something that I find fascinating about the incubation process or our incubator program is we talk about it already today, but intention. You know, from our perspective, we took a hypothesis and, and a market segment around, you know, something that we want to dive into and we've put some intention behind it. You know, that, that's different than some traditional R&D where you sort of take an approach and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, or ultimately you're kind of doing a lot more research with different technology where, you know, our outcome is working with the customers or working with the industry to put a product in their hands and allow them to use Use it at the end of the day. You guys are speaking my language right now. I had the pleasure of joining Autodesk when they uh, they acquired PlanGrid, and I've had the opportunity to to dance in a couple different startups. And it's such a fun environment to to kind of get that green light to just go try a thing. Like it's not there's expectations, obviously, and guidelines. And you know, fortunately at Autodesk, there's a safety net too. But that freedom to just go try. It's like okay, we think this is going to work, and it sounds like you've successfully created something that moves us away from handing over a box of binders and CDs to the owner and saying, you know, have fun, good luck, here's your building. So that, that's encouraging to hear and I'm appreciative of all the hard work you're doing. But let's move to the tail end of our show today. And our listeners are very familiar with the next question. It's a recurring one that I like to ask everybody. And let's start with Tim first. So you're going you're gonna to be in the hot seat, Tim. What is one tool you will always carry in your toolbox, no matter what type of project you're working on? That's a good question. I'm going to say an exacto knife. I can't tell you the number of situations and, and I do some woodworking, so I always have that at hand for all sorts of different situations, but yeah, I, I'm going to go with an X-Acto knife. All right, I appreciate that you clarified that it's for woodworking and not, you know, fighting or something, you know, uncouth. Cutting boxes. <laughs> uh. Bob, how about you? What's one tool that you will take to every project you work on, no matter the project? You know, Eric, I've, I've always been a software geek. And so for me, it, it's always... 
a passion for understanding that owner's needs. And, and I say needs, not what they want, but what they need and really showing them a, a new possible. So for me, it's that passion around the opportunity that, that I always have in the toolbox. I like that because it's it's one that step further than them asking specifically for maybe a very narrow scoped tool or something that fits their immediate need. But if you're going bigger and you go, okay, yeah, this will help you with this, but it also fixes all these problems. That's a, a great approach to lead with. So I appreciate you sharing that. Do either of you have anything you'd like to plug that our listeners should know about? Tim and I have been working very hard and diligently on, on Autodesk Tandem. Uh, that is in beta today. So we'd love to, uh, if there's interest, uh, have anyone out there in the community join our beta community. Uh, Tim and I host webinars. There's forums there. We always love feedback. The beta is there and accessible. If you want to join the beta, try things out, give us some feedback. You know, that's that's really what's going to make Tandem a success for the industry is your contribution and feedback. So we would love that. There is a link that we can certainly provide, Eric, and have uh, everyone have the opportunity to join in. Awesome. I will make sure to throw that link into the show notes to make sure that everybody listening has a, a quick access to jumping into the beta if they feel like it's an interesting path for them to take. Tim, is there anything else that you'd like to plug that our listeners should know about? No, I think Bob nailed it. We're excited to get these listeners engaged with Tandem. And ultimately, you know, we do have a community space where you don't have to be in the product and, and you can still get in and give your feedback and listen to Bob and I talk about Autodesk Tandem at Nauseam. <laughs> so feel free to join and jump in our forums. But we do appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about Digital Twins and Tandem here. All right. Well, that's great. And if anybody wants to reach out to you directly to ask any questions about Digital Twins or software technology or incubators at Autodesk or any other incredible topic that we've covered in the, in the last hour or so, is there a, a great way that they could connect with each of you? Tim, how about you share your contact info first? Yeah, you can reach out on LinkedIn is, is perfect. Tim Kelly is a generic name. Name, so make sure you put Autodesk on there and you should be able to find me that way. I feel you there. Eric Thomas is also a very generic one. And there's a motivational speaker that has stolen my name, which unfortunately pushes my Google <laughs> ranking down much lower than I appreciate. So yeah, just make sure you're adding Autodesk whenever you search for, you know, Tim or myself. Bob, how about you? It's the best way for our listeners to reach out. Two ways to get to me. One is obviously through the Tandem community. Join that link. You can get the Tim or I that way. The other way to get to me personally is Robert Bray on LinkedIn. I, I am always there. So uh, LinkedIn is a great way to get to me and, and add Autodesk because there's there's quite a few Robert Bray's in the world, apparently. We're all lost in the ether of our common names. I feel both of your pain. So, well, thanks again, everybody, for taking the time to join us on this episode of Digital Builder. If you want to reach out with any questions or want to appear on an episode, you can find me on LinkedIn or via Twitter at builder underscore digital. Also, check out our homepage by visiting construction.autodesk.com forward slash podcast. On that page, you can sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter and suggest show topics or guest ideas. If you're really loving Digital Builder, of course, please take a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite player. And of course, you can always like, subscribe to, or share this episode if you enjoyed it. I would be a very bad podcast host if I didn't ask you to do all of those things. And on that final note, goodbye. You've been listening to Digital Builder. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves, and then you're done. 
Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.